We'll hear argument next in case 07-1191, Briscoe versus Virginia. Mr. Friedman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. We ask the Court in this case to take no new ground beyond that established just last term in the Melendez-Diaz case, but the stakes of this case are high. If the Court were to reverse Melendez-Diaz and hold that a State may impose on the defendant the burden of calling a prosecution witness to the stand, it would severely impair the confrontation right and threaten a fundamental transformation in the way Anglo-American trials have been conducted for hundreds of years. The State Court has interpreted their provision to uh, give the defendant the choice of subpoenaing the witness or asking the State to bring in the witness. Why is that overruling Melendez-Diaz? Uh, Your, Your Honor, the, the State Courts, uh, since the, the time of this case, since the time that these cases were tried, raised that possibility of asking the, uh, that, that the defendant could ask the witness to bring, uh, to, the, that the defendant could ask the prosecution to bring in the witness. It doesn't really change anything from a straight subpoena statute in any, in either event. Well, how is that different from a notice statute? If, if, okay. the, if we take the statute as the State Supreme Court has read it. Right. They say, in my mind, it's a notice statute. Tell the prosecutor you either want them to call the witness or you subpoena the witness. That's what the state court has told us. Whether or not you had notice of that interpretation is a separate question. That, 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 Let's separate out right, the two Okay, questions. fine, fine. The, the, the two aspects that Melendez-Diaz said were wrong with the subpoena statute mm-hmm. are both present in this statute, even as interpreted by the, uh, by the state Supreme Court. Uh, that is, nothing in Melendez-Diaz, uh, uh, I'm sorry, nothing in the Magruder case, the, the opinion here, suggests that the, uh, uh, that the prosecution uh, would bear the burden of calling the witness to the stand. I think the Magruder case, the decision of the State Supreme Court, is very explicit and goes in So that's our first question. That's, Does so the Confrontation Clause require not just the ability to cross-examine? That's right but an affirmative obligation to place the witness on the stand. That's correct. That's correct. Could I just ask you what? Yes, sure. Would swearing the witness in and saying to the witness, is this your report, and the witness saying yes, what would be unconstitutional about that, given our case law that says that any prior statements by a witness are admissible once the witness is on the stand, are constitutionally admissible once they're on the stand. Right. The, the cases involving that were California v. Green and United States v. Owens. In both cases, there were questions asked of the witness about what happened. So I do believe, uh, though it hasn't been resolved in this Court, I do believe that the uh, prosecution should go beyond simply saying, is this And, and the should is a different question than the one I asked. No, no I mean, I think, the uh, constitution, uh, my, I think constitutionally the, the um, Prosecution would be uh, compelled at least to ask, uh, what is your recollection? Do you endorse the statement? But even if that's not Do you have anything historically or in any case that would suggest that that is a constitutional requirement? I mean, I do accept that there's plenty that says you you have a right to be — to confront the witness. Right. But, But what would require the prosecutor to actually do more than I just suggested? Is this your is this your statement? Is this your lab report? Um, 
Your, your Honor, so far as I can tell, it's hardly ever been tried for the obvious reason that if all the prosecution does to say is this it and not ask a, uh, a, a further question of the witness. It's not terribly persuasive. I don't disagree with right. that. It's a it, matter well, of trial tactic, but I'm not talking yes, about trial right. tactic. But, but, I, but it's, it's something the prosecutors don't try because they'd have to bear the, the risk. So, so part of my response is, well, let them go ahead and try it if they, if they want. Bear what risk? Bear what risk? Bear what risk? Bear, bear, bear the risk that the, uh, uh, that the witness has gotten on the stand and is not even asked to, uh, to recall. Bear the cost of putting a witness on. Well, he says, is, is, is this your lab report and do you stand by it? Well, the, the end, you, do you stand by it? That's the, that's the critical point. Uh, that, that's, that's going beyond the hypotheticals I understood it from Justice Ah, Sotomayor. I see. So, okay. But, but, but yeah, I, I, I understood the hypothetical yeah, uh, to be, but, be otherwise. Though. No, no, if it's, and do you stand by it, then that's right. fine. But I do know of a couple of cases involving child witnesses where they don't ask — they put the witness on the stand and they don't ask anything about the events at issue. And in those cases, there's uh, — uh, the courts have held that that's, that's not acceptable. Well, but so, what's different, that's because there's nothing in evidence about the incident, correct? Well, no, no. Then they presented a former statement by the child. I, so, so I do think that there is some and justification. And that was a, those yeah. were found I, — I don't — were so, those found violation of the confrontation? Clause? Those are found violation of the confrontation clause. The, or due process. Confrontation clause. The uh, state v. Rourke, uh, which is cited in my brief on another point, and uh, learn an Illinois appellate case from I think just last. It's not uh, clear to me what your answer to these questions is. If all the prosecution does is call the analyst to the stand and admit, uh, have the analyst provide a foundation for the admission of the report. Let's say pursuant to the hearsay exception for recorded recollection, and does nothing more, would there be a confrontation clause problem? Uh, and and there's, there's the question, is this your report? Do you stand by it? Then, then I don't think there's a confrontation clause uh, problem. Uh, because, because the prosecution has put the witness on the stand, has asked those questions, and then the witness uh, — and, and what's the difference between that situation and a situation in which the, the report is, admiss- is admitted uh, subject to, uh, and the analyst is available, and the defense can question the analyst if the defense wishes to. Well, I think I think the difference is that once you ask the question, do you stand by it, then the witness has testified one way or another. And the prosecution, as I say, bears the, the risk that the witness will not uh, testify in accordance with the prior uh, uh, statement. On a past recollection recorded, the witness doesn't stand by the statement. The witness says, I made the statement. I have no current knowledge. They can't stand by it or not stand That's right. by it. I, I take California v. Green at its word. California v. Green says, and, and uh, Owens follows up, and says that if the witness does not testify in accordance with the prior statement, then the, the defendant has had some of the, has had considerable benefit of cross-examination already. So, so the, the prosecution has to, has to put the witness through that pace to make sure that that happens. Beyond that, I don't understand what you just said. I want to say it again. Yes. California v. Green says that if the witness testifies inconsistently with a prior statement, that the defendant has had the benefit of cross-examination in showing the inconsistency. So, so Justice Alito asked me what's the difference, and I'm saying eight, eight <laughs> difference. One difference is that if the, defend, if the witness does not testify in accordance with the prior statement, that's apparent to the, uh, that's apparent to the jury. There are also all the um, uh, practical uh, differences that uh, we emphasize. You're asking us now to state something that you admit is in really no 
constitutional case or historical case that says the right to confrontation means that the witness has to tell the story. And the form of telling that story has to be a verbal recitation. It can't be past recorded recollection because you just said they have to tell the story. It can't be based on official documents or anything else because it has to be their story. Am I hearing you wrong? No, no, I don't believe so. I'm saying that the witness has to take the stand, has to testify live, viva voce, face-to-face in the time-honored phrases, which have always governed testimony in an Anglo-American trial. Then I think the witness has to at least be asked what happened. If the witness says, I don't recall, then the prior statement may be introduced. I'm not beyond anything that's previously been said. What is the theory of this? I understand in hearsay, which, as we've just seen demonstrated, is very complicated, filled with all kinds of rules, some of which I may recall and others of which I certainly don't. Right. But the confrontation clause, I would have thought, would have picked out the heart of that. So we have Sir Walter Raleigh, and Sir Walter Raleigh says, bring in the witnesses, which they wouldn't. So why shouldn't we say what this clause is about? It's Sir Walter Raleigh. Bring in the witnesses. Now, once you bring them in, the defendant can do what he wants. He's had his chance to cross-examine them. End of the matter, and leave the rest up to the hearsay law. I want to emphasize that the confrontation clause is about a lot more — there are nearly 200 years of history between Walter Raleigh and the confrontation clause. And what was established is that in an Anglo-American trial, witnesses give their testimony live, face-to-face. And Melendez-Diaz emphasized last term, you can't prove the case via an affidavit. So it's the fundamental question that Crawford established, the fundamental principle that Crawford establishes is, this is the way witnesses testify in our trials, live, in front of the jury, subject to oath and cross-examination. I trust the trial process. And much of your brief was talking about that process and the fact that it's much more effective when the witness tells their story and you get a chance to cross-examine than if you have to start from the platform of cross-examination. Once a defendant makes it known that he's going to cross-examine a lab technician, don't you think that in the vast majority of cases the prosecutor is going to put that witness on? And if he does or doesn't, why shouldn't we leave it to the normal trial strategy and practice to leave to that prosecutor the burden of non-persuasion, which is what confrontation was about, which is? If the prosecutor is certain that the defendant is going to put the witness on the stand, then the prosecutor has some reasons to put the witness on first. The problem is that the defunct Virginia statute puts the burden on the defendant of bringing the witness in. Well, I was starting from a different proposition than you did, because I think that's a question for your adversaries. How would you have known that you should have asked the State to bring that witness in? But putting that aside, assume we're reading it the way the Court has now. 
The, the fact is that under the Virginia statute, given — and as interpreted by the Commonwealth, too, given that the defendant has the burden of putting the witness on the stand, defendants rarely exercise that right because it's a corrupted right, because it isn't nearly as valuable, as I think Your Honor understands, as the right to stand up and cross-examine a witness who's actually just uh, testified. I don't think that the right given by the Virginia uh, statute is the, — the, the former Virginia statute — is actually the right to cross-examine. It's not informed cross-examination, and it's not in substance cross-examination. It's a right to make the witness the defendant's own, and that's the way that's the way the statute is is worded. Mr. Friedman, one of the problems that has been brought up is that this is an inordinate expense, and you're wasting the time <coughs> of the analyst. Do you recognize? any economy, uh, for example, that the analyst could testify from the lab, that you have video conferencing, and so the, the analyst, while the prosecutor must call her, can testify from the lab instead of coming down to the courthouse. That, that is a, certainly a possibility, at least on consent of the defendant. And, and some states, including my own state of Michigan, have been experimenting with that. And I think that's a plausible possibility. Now, if the defendant uh, were to insist on, on live testimony, that is an open, uh, that's an open question as to uh, whether uh, video testimony would be acceptable. This Court some years ago uh, refused to transmit to Congress a proposed amendment to uh, Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. And, uh, Majority in a statement by Justice Scalia said there's a virtual uh, uh, satisfaction of the confrontation right, not not a real satisfaction. So the, the, the matter as to whether it could be done without consent hasn't been satisfied, hasn't been determined. But certainly on consent it could, and in many cases I believe that defendants, that those defendants who do want confrontation would be perfectly willing to accept uh, video. But I do I do want to respond also to the uh, the, the, the premise. I I believe that. Uh, sufficient data is now available to show rather clearly that the expense is not inordinate. Um, uh, How can you say that? We have an amicus brief from 26 states plus the District of Columbia arguing exactly the contrary. Uh, yes, I understand. Say that, that, that there is a very substantial category of cases in which defendants really have no interest whatsoever in contesting either the nature or the quantity of drugs involved. But they will refuse to stipulate to those things simply for the purpose of putting a financial burden on the prosecution, because they know if they do that, it may be helpful for them in getting a better plea bargain, plus there is a certain risk that the analyst will not show up, and they will get the benefit of that. So, Your, Your Honor, I think that what the, uh, the state's uh, amicus brief shows is that there are, uh, um, there are a lot of uh, uh, drug prosecutions and there are a lot of drug a- a- analyses. Uh, and then there's the speculation about the type of gamesmanship that you've mentioned. But if we look for hard data, there's nothing supporting that. Uh, so let's look at a couple of jurisdictions that have perfectly valid notice and demand rules. Um, Ohio, it's less than one appearance per lab uh, analyst per month. That is in the, uh, the state lab. Less than one if this is not a burden on these 26 states plus the District of Columbia, why are they bothering to make this argument? I, I, Just for amusement? Uh, I'm sure not for amusement. I think there's a certain amount of solidarity. I'm sure that they would uh, rather not have whatever expense there is. But frankly, I think a large part is that they recognize 
that the defunct Virginia statute is an impairment of the confrontation right and makes it harder for defendants. It makes it makes it less likely that the confrontation right is going to uh, is going to uh, be invoked. Let's look at the District of Columbia. Um, the, in the, the District of Columbia, it's about it's about a half a person a year in extra expense uh, caused by uh, uh, lab techs having to come and, and testify. That's uh, that that is not a large burden for for the District of Columbia. And in fact, the District of Columbia. Uh, the lab that services the District of Columbia has gotten by with five fewer technicians than it did before the change. I, but I assume you've picked the best example for you. D.C. is a small place. You go to a big state, and the lab is not always right next your, door. Your Honor, I, I, I'm just little old me, and I did just picked what I could get. And frankly, the, the example I picked was because the uh, Solicitor General's brief uh, had data on the District of Columbia, so I asked some more questions. That's why I got uh, – that's why I got um, uh, the District of Columbia. Uh, Ohio, I, I asked because they were a neighboring state, and I was able to get some information. You could have, you could have hearsay uh, that is not prepared for testimony. There are all kinds of categories. And suppose in your case, this hearsay, a business record, right. or uh, uh, and it, it, how often will you say, I understand it's admissible, but I would like as well to call the witness who prepared it. Will you do that very often? Suppose you learn that that witness is, is uh, 4,000 miles away. So you say, I'd like to call this witness, and you know perfectly well that it's going to be virtually impossible for that witness to be produced. What happens? And we're talking about non-testimonial hearsay. I'm trying to think of something that's hearsay, and, 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 and what I'm trying to figure out yeah. is will uh, defense attorneys uh, if they have the right under the Constitution to insist that a lab technician be present, mm -hmm. in cases where they happen to know that lab technician's left the job and is married and is reliving in a distant state, say, okay, let's call her. Say, and, and, and that way the prosecution really cannot present the case except at inordinate expense. Uh, you, and and I'm, I'm concerned about that, but right. I don't see quite how to deal with it, how much of a problem it is, and the impact on this particular situation. I, I, I don't think it's a significant problem. And, and, and I, I do want to say I, I, didn't, I didn't select data. I just got the, presented the, the data in the states that I had. And, and my but own state of Aren't there states that have been proceeding this way even before we came, came down with our opinion? Absolutely. And they are not on — which states are they? Uh, they, they? Well, they include my own state of Michigan. They include the state of New York. And they are not underwater, are they? Uh, the, the problems of the state of Michigan uh, are not attributable to the, the use of this procedure. No. Um, Your answer to Justice Breyer has to be, of course you would insist that the person be called. It would be malpractice for you not to. It, it, it is, yes, but it's not a significant problem. And one reason it's not a significant problem is that the possibility of a deposition is all. I don't know except anecdotally, but Massachusetts seems to be having huge problems uh, reported that, anecdotally with the uh, not, not, the, not, not according not to, the, not according to the uh, chief of the um, uh, chief trial counsel of Suffolk, uh, uh, the Suffolk District. Rouse is that? Uh, excuse me. The woman, Barbara, Barbara Rouse. But, but I, in my reply brief on page 27, I quote Patrick Hagan, uh, who says, "Who says the sky is not falling?" And then there are conflicting well. reports in the it, newspapers, but I don't know what. That uh, um, uh, and of course, there can be an adjustment period, but but states can adjust. I think the uh, the, the simplest answer to your question, Justice Breyer, is the use of deposition. Um, and I think prosecutors probably have been underusing depositions, but, but, but if a lab tech is about to uh, retire 
and, and that lab tech has done uh, a test that is about to be used, then take the deposition. What happens if the lab is, is divided into four or five parts and there are several different machines and we have different people at different times using these different machines and performing different operations uh, and each at the end certifies that the red light was on or it was this or it was that? Now, do we have to call all those people? Uh, I, no, I don't, I don't believe you have to call all those people. Why I not? Believe that each of them, each of them looked at a special part. Each of them said right. that uh, it was this or that. And in respect to each of those statements, it's this or that. That is hearsay. Right. Um, the, the problem, of course, isn't hearsay. The problem is the, the only question. No, no, it's no confrontation, the, the, because in this instance, the hearsay prevents the confrontation. Right. The, the, the prosecution has to present the testimony of uh, witnesses has to present the testimony live. Depending on how the lab is organized, usually labs can organize so that only one person needs to needs to present. In any event, of course, the state is is acknowledging that if the defendant uh, brings uh, demands, they have to bring in the uh, the witness. Your answer to my question is: If a laboratory is so organized so that six or seven people perform different steps of the operation, if it is organized in that way, mm-hmm. all of them must be brought. I, I, I don't believe so. I believe you don't believe so, but you gave me an answer saying they did have to. Well, so, as you said, they could organize differently. So now explain right. to me why they don't. Even if, they, even if they're organized in that way, for, for instance, if one person observes all the, uh, all the procedures, that's sufficient. Uh, apart from that, uh, as Melendez-Diaz uh, uh, indicates, it's up, to the, it's up to the state to decide what the evidence they're going to present. Suppose one person doesn't observe all the procedures. One person prepares a sample, another person puts it on the paper, another right. person reads the machine, another person calibrates the machine. Yeah, right. Well, I, I think Melendez-Diaz indicates that it's up to the state to determine what the, uh, uh, the evidence that's going to be presented, and there may be gaps. I do want to no, emphasize this no, is an issue. the evidence is presented. The, 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 the test comes out so, uh, positive so that the gun fires or that the, it's a drug or that it's a DNA sample. Can the conclusion be presented by one witness from the lab when that witness did not observe all of the procedures? I, I, think, uh, I think that uh, there probably has to be a witness who has observed the, uh, the procedures. If I'm — and that's an issue that will be presented to the, uh, the court, we, we can be pretty certain — I think that issue is entirely orthogonal to the issue here, because the, the Commonwealth is acknowledging — I'm sorry, entirely what? Orthogonal, right angles, unrelated, oh. irrelevant. What was that okay. adjective? I like orthogonal. that. Or, or, orthogonal. Orthogonal. Right, right. Ooh. Okay. I, I okay. knew this case presented I, us a problem. <laughs> I should have said — I probably should have said — I think we should use that in the opinion. I thought I'd seen it. I thought I'd seen it before. Or the dissent. That's a, a bit of per- — <laughs> Bit of professor, professorship creeping in, I suppose. But but the Commonwealth is acknowledging that they have to bring in witnesses uh, if the if the defense demands. So this is another issue as to wh- who are the uh, who are the witnesses. But That's in a, your view, it wouldn't satisfy the confrontation clause if, say, the supervisor shows up and said that this is way this is the way the analysts operate. In, describes the procedure. In my view, it wouldn't. But if I'm wrong, it doesn't change this case whatsoever. It does not change this case whatsoever. It, it has nothing to do with the issue here. The issue here is, is the, uh, the witnesses who are going to testify, how much they, they testify. And I want to — Well, the reason that I ask is because in floating in the back of my mind is, yeah. is, is, is if, if, A, does the confrontation clause apply? Right. And if the answer to A is yes, 
then are there different kinds of implementation rules in different areas where there are other uh, uh, signs of uh, security, where there are other reasons for thinking it's not bad testimony? Now, that line is not something that's necessarily workable. And, uh, but I brought it up to yeah. try to think about it. I think, I think it's an interesting question, and um, it's question three in the evidence exam that I'm just uh, grading, in fact. Uh, but I think that's an issue that the Court will have to resolve. And as I say, uh, my, my views are what they, what they are, but, but if you reject my views on that, it doesn't change this case whatsoever. What I think is important to recognize is how fundamental a transformation in the Anglo-American trial is threatened if, uh, if the Court were to hold that the uh, prosecution can present an affidavit and leave it to the defendant, if he dares, to put the witness on these. Well, does that square with where we started out? It, it, we have situation A, where the prosecutor calls the, the lab analyst, and the lab analyst says, this is my report, and uh, I stand by it, period. Now it's up to the defense to cross-examine. That's situation A. Situation B is the report is admitted without the analyst present, but the defense can then cross-examine, without the analyst on the stand, right. but the defense can then cross-examine the analyst. I, I wouldn't call that cross such a slight difference between those two situations. Now, how is that a fundamental transformation of it, the way Anglo-American trials It's, a, it's a fundamental transformation because the, the prosecution can present a stack of affidavits, and they wouldn't even have to be affidavits. They, they could just be signed. They, they could just be statements. It could present videotapes. It could present audio tapes. It could craft those and rehearse those behind scenes. It could present those. No, well, no, let's just not get beyond the facts of this case, where all that it, all that we're dealing with is a an analyst's report relating to the the nature of the substance that was tested, and if it's a controlled substance, the amount. That's it. It doesn't extend to anything else, videotapes or anything but more. There's such a slight difference I, between those two situations. I think there's an enormous difference in, in, in impact. It's an enormous impact, as I've emphasized in my uh, brief, because of the impairment of the uh, ability uh, to examine. Now, I don't believe it's cross-examination. Uh, in, in practice, it, it is. If the defendant said, I don't want to cross-examine, but I still insist that the, that the witness get up on the stand and let's see what the witness can do. And the Commonwealth makes no attempt to distinguish between these witnesses and other witnesses for what is, is, cross, is, is satisfactory confrontation. It says this is good confrontation. He could do it with all witnesses. If uh, the Court please, I will reserve the balance. Thank you, Mr. Friedman. Thank you. <clears throat> Mr. McCullough. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. I think an appropriate place to start would be how the Supreme Court of Virginia construed this statute and get past that and into the confrontation issue. The, the first thing I would note there is that the petitioners simply have not challenged the decision of the, the interpretation of the Supreme Court of Virginia that it placed on the statute. So I think uh, to the extent they're now for the first time in their reply brief trying to raise a separate due process issue, um, that the construction of the court was so unreasonable that it violates due process, it's far too late in the day to do that. So I think the court — It goes — that goes to the <clears throat> waiver question. Um, <clears throat> right. How did they know at trial that they were supposed to say to you, I don't want a subpoena, you bring them in? I think the, the way the, the Supreme Court of Virginia construed the statute is perfectly sensible. What it says, and the key phrase is on page two of our brief, that no, uh, excuse me, such witnesses shall be summoned and appear at the cost of the Commonwealth. And unlike some statutes that say the defendant shall subpoena or shall summon, for example, like the Idaho and the North Dakota statutes that the petitioners cite, 
They're express in saying it has to be um, the, the, the defendant who issues a summons. This just says shall be summoned in a criminal trial at the time these petitioners were being tried. There are two parties that have the authority to issue summons. One was the clerk of court, that is, a defendant would go to the court and say, these are my witnesses, um, have them produced for trial on this date. And the other was the Commonwealth. So the statute simply doesn't say it has to be the Commonwealth, it has to be the defendant. It's silent. The Supreme Court of Virginia has a long history of construing statutes in a way that obviates a constitutional problem. But you're, you're still begging the question. How they did what any reasonable defendant would do and say, I object to the admission of this lab report. I have a right under the Confrontation Clause to have the, um, the lab technician here, and the Commonwealth Court said, no, you don't. And right. so did the Court of on Appeal. How did they know that this was a notice and demand statute as opposed to a subpoena statute? I think it was incumbent on counsel to raise the issue exactly like counsel for the defendant did in the Grant case. And I think it's noteworthy that in the Grant case, the, the motion was filed well in advance of trial on November 2nd, 2007, before the Supreme Court of Virginia ever um, construed the statute in this fashion. And so the fact that a statute may be susceptible to more than one interpretation doesn't obviate the need for counsel to take the steps that are necessary to protect the right. Could I ask you, if we were to, how do we articulate a rule, or do we need to, that would take care of the fears of your adversary, that trials would become trials by affidavit, that the police, that prosecutors will choose to put all witnesses on by videotape, by affidavit, by deposition, whatever mode they choose except bringing them into court, and forcing defendants then to call the witnesses and do a, what's, what I call a cold cross. What rule would we announce in this case I think that would avoid what constru- constitutional construction of the Confrontation Clause would we issue that would protect against that? I think there are several constitutional legal and practical considerations that make this. No, 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 forget the practical. Talk about the legal constitution. Right. Constitutionally, there are two uh, obstacles to a wholesale um, uh, type of trial system where the prosecution would simply present a stack of affidavits. Um, the first of those is the due process clause, which, um, if, for example, in these child witness cases, um, what a number of courts have held is that it, it's going to inflame the jury against the defendant if a videotape is introduced and then the defendant is called, forced to call the witness to the stand. And that's simply not the case with these types of witness. So the, the due process clause itself puts the brakes on the type of wholesale at trial. For child witnesses, anything else? Um, another is the fact that under the confrontation clause, um, the cross-examination has to be effective. And so if 
uh, the prosecution on the day of trial dumps a series of, of affidavits on the defense. It's going to be pretty difficult for the defense to um, be, be in a position to effectively cross-examine. No, just one or two. Just one or two affidavits. Or it, uh, the, the court has a rule you have to provide those affidavits several weeks before trial. That would be okay. I think under We'd have a whole European-type trial, right? We trial by affidavit. Right. I, I don't think the Confrontation Clause, in terms of what it's historically intended to protect, blocks that scenario. I think the key to the Confrontation Clause, what this Court has said for a long time, turning to the history of the clause, is that it's designed to protect the reliability of the government's evidence. And the way it does that is by subjecting that to the crucible of cross-examination face-to-face of live witnesses. And this statute protects exactly that. Um, that is, the defendant says he wants the witness there. No, it does more than that. It does more than that. It is the prosecution that has had to place the witness on the stand. It has not been up to the defense to say, oh, no, I object to this affidavit. I would like you to bring him. No, the prosecution has to bring in the witness. That has been what the Confrontation Clause has meant. We agree that we have to produce the witness for court, but we see little constitutional You don't agree with that. You say you don't have to do it unless the defendant uh, objects and, and issue, gets a subpoena issued. Well, we agree that if the defendant does provide the notice, as with the notice and demand statute, that, it, that it's our burden to make sure that witness is there. And if, as the statute provides, the witness has to be summoned and appear. So, this statute has always been strictly construed against the prosecution. If it fails to do exactly what the statute requires, that cuts against the, the prosecution. So the witness does have How to How is that here. clear from the statute? I'm sorry? How is that clear from the statute? It just says that a subpoena shall issue. What if a subpoena issues and nobody comes? Right. And, and it, the, the fact that the prosecution, excuse me, that the statute is interpreted strictly against the prosecution comes from several decades of jurisprudence from the Supreme Court of Virginia, and we cite those cases on page one of our brief. Oh, strict construction of statutes in general or strict of construction this of this provision? This particular statutory scheme. For example, if uh, the, 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 the um, 192.187, the, the um, st- statute that precedes this, says that it has to be filed seven days before the trial. And if it's filed six days, uh, forget it, you have to bring in a live witness. So but I'm, these, but I'm talking about the specific issue of the person subpoenaed not appearing. Do you have a case? No, I don't have so a case. So we don't really know. But I, but I think the answer follows inexorably. I don't know how, how strict construction gets you to the, uh, t- to the result that when it is the defendant who has to take the initiative to get the person brought in, if the person doesn't show up, it's, it doesn't fall on the defendant. It falls on the prosecution. Well, I don't see how strict construction gets you there. The, the Grant case, for example, um, which the, our Court of Appeals of Virginia said was simply an application of the holding in the Magruder decision, there the defendant did uh, – well in advance of trial, sent a, a notice to the, the Commonwealth, said, I want the witness there. The Commonwealth didn't get the subpoena out. So that was the first part of that, shall be summoned. And the Court of Appeal said, you should never have allowed this in without the live witness being present. Um, and so what 
although Grant didn't address the appear part, the same answer is true. That is, the defendant says, I want the witness there. The Commonwealth issues a summons, but the witness doesn't appear. It's the same result. Well, I think that underlying this is a, a fairly simple problem conceptually. The, the, imagine we have Sir Walter Raleigh at trial. And there's an affidavit from missing witness A and witness B and witness C. And they're over in a room somewhere, whether they were treated badly or not. And they've written these pieces of paper. In they come. And Walter Raleigh says, bring me the witness. Now, suppose they had trotted him out. And he cross-examined him. Still, those pieces of paper came in, and they weren't cross-examined. And so what do we do about that? They weren't cross-examined. And how did they get in here? And I, I think your question goes to the very heart of why we have the Confrontation Clause. It wasn't because of this formalistic order of proof that our modern trials have. Um, and, and one thing that makes this case conceptually difficult is we're so accustomed to this clean order of presentation um, that, that uh, that's how we've all tried our cases. That's how we're, we're used to seeing them. But that's not the heart of the Confrontation Clause. The Confrontation Clause is because, for example, the colonists were subject to anonymous. As I read this statute, it does let in that piece of paper. It does. But well, the, so why, why then, by analogy, isn't the statute bad? Well, because. If, unless, you, unless you have some special kind. I mean, you'd have to have some special, specially reliable evidence that sort of fell within the Confrontation Clause, but not totally. And that's what I was but the more I think about that, the harder that one is to I mean, do. There are, so, 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 uh, there are characteristics, of course, to this particular type of evidence that were debated in this Court's Melendez-Diaz opinion um, that make this procedure certainly more appropriate. And one of those is these uh, — what, functionally what you're doing when you have this witness on the stand mm -hmm. is either past recollection recorded or past recollection refreshed, because they're doing — approximately 900 of these certificates of year, uh, a year. They're largely fungible uh, things like, like crack cocaine or powder cocaine. Um, and so we're miles from uh, the type of scenario where well, — To put my chips on the table, which you probably understand, I thought the reliability of this evidence in the mine run of cases was such, and the distance from Sir Walter Raleigh was sufficiently great that it fell outside the scope of the Confrontation Clause for those two reasons. Right. But mine was a dissenting opinion. Right. I so therefore, what do I do? <laughs> <coughs> well, uh, I think, though, even, even going back to the very heart, the historical heart of this clause, the, the problems for these colonists was anonymous accusers and absentee witnesses. That's, the, that's why they, they were enraged because of this deeply unfair trial procedure. It wasn't because, for example, um, a harbor master might be called in and, and uh, uh, records of what ships came in uh, for, the, for these colonists who were in the vice admiralty courts. And, and some paper is introduced about what ships came in, and then they get the opportunity to cross-examine them before uh, the prosecution has asked any questions of the, of the harbor master. That's not the problem that the confrontation, confrontation clause. The problem you described, the, the hearsay rule would have solved that alone, wouldn't it? 
Well, that's one of the practical. Uh, uh, so, so what's left for the confrontation clause to do? Well, the confrontation clause is designed to ensure uh, the, the core of it, and, and we agree with this, is what this Court has said for a long time, a face-to-face -face encounter with a witness who is cross-examined face-to-face <laughs> under oath. But it doesn't um, have to happen in the prosecutor's case. In other words, the prosecutor puts in the reports and rests, and the defendant says there wasn't sufficient evidence, I move to dismiss the case. Couldn't be dismissed at that point. The prosecutor would prove its case by the affidavit alone. Right. But uh, first, of, a, a couple points in response. <coughs> first of all, the statute doesn't say at what point the defendant gets to treat this witness as an adverse witness. It just says the report comes in. And then the defendant can call the witness as an adverse witness. And the Supreme Court of Virginia deliberately left the question of the order of proof unresolved because it viewed those things as a due process issue. So I don't think it's axiomatic under the statute, although it's possible that the defendant would conduct the cross-examination during his case. Um, but, but beyond that, the Confrontation Clause isn't designed to constitutionalize uh, Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 29 or a motion to strike. The defendant could still, in Virginia procedure, it's a motion to strike. The defendant could still make that motion at the close of all the evidence. And it's still not clear, on, not clear under the statute that if the witness doesn't show up, it's the prosecution that bears the burden. No, I think that's very clear. Uh, uh, under both clear? the plain language of the statute and the way it's been construed adversely to the Commonwealth. The plain language of the statute is the witness shall be summoned and appear. So there's a requirement of appearance. And if the defendant asks the prosecutor to summon the witness, the witness then has to appear. Um, and going — and we, we cite some of these cases, uh, again, on page one of our — It doesn't brief. say what the consequence of his not appearing is. That the, that the written testimony uh, is, stands and is admitted without the opportunity to cross-examine the witness? The consequence emerges from this line of cases, Justice Scalia, that um, if the, the, the statute requires the witness to appear, and if the Commonwealth doesn't do exactly what the statute requires, a live witness, um, or excuse me, the certificate does not come in without the live witness. Just like if you don't file, the statute says file seven days before court. The prosecutor issues the, the subpoena. Right. And the that witness would, does not show up. Right. I'm and not talking about fault on the part of the prosecutor. I'm talking about the fact that the witness has died, has fled the state, is simply not available. But I think the language answers that. It ha the witness has to appear. The statute says, shall be summoned, and the requirement is that the witness appear. If the witness does not appear... Of course, he's required to appear. But what happens if he doesn't appear? Uh, we, I, I'm sorry, but we seem to be going in, in circles. No, no, and I want to answer we're not going in circles at all. You, 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 you appeal to the language that the witness shall appear as resolving what happens when he doesn't. And it doesn't resolve that. It just says he must appear. And if he doesn't appear, what happens? 
If he doesn't appear, the Commonwealth has failed to do what the statute requires, which is to make sure the witness appears. And if the Commonwealth fails to do exactly what the statute requires, it must uh, — it cannot rely on a piece of paper. Well, I, I don't see the statute requiring that. It requires that of the witness. He shall appear. And, and I mean, to the extent there's, there's any question about that, I, I don't think it's a matter that, that this Court should resolve in the first instance. I think it would be a matter of remand to the Supreme Court of Virginia to determine what, what the statute requires in that instance. Um, let me just spend a moment, since we've, we've talked about the costs, um, our experience in Virginia, we, of course, we repealed this statute. This Court signaled in Melendez-Diaz what a safe harbor was uh, with notice and demand, and so we went there. Um, and what we've seen under our new statute is rampant uh, demands for the witness to appear, followed by, oh, well, he's here, I'll stipulate, or no questions of the witness. Um, so uh, our experience under this old statute compared to our new one is that we had far more uh, or far less under our old statute of this sort of tactical demands uh, for confrontation. How new is the new one? Uh, it went into effect August 21, 2009. The, uh, the reply brief of, of, of the petitioners uh, mentions that the, that the same thing, a spike, occurred in other jurisdictions uh, after Melendez-Diaz, but then the spike went down. That, after that, after six months or a short period. The spike has plateaued somewhat in Virginia, but we're still yeah. seeing extensive gamesmanship. And I think one what is peculiar about Virginia that, uh, or, or what is peculiar about Michigan or the other states that have this system and, and somehow are able to live with it? Uh, well, I Virginia think Virginia criminals are nastier. Is that it? No, I, I, I think um, I, I, I don't know that, that there's anything particularly different about Virginia criminals. I will say that this type of statute, uh, as this Court noted in Melendez-Diaz, defense attorneys um, don't want to necessarily antagonize the Court and so on by making these kind of gamesmanship demands. Well, a cross-examination-focused statute like this one more uh, blatantly exposes that type of gamesmanship and therefore may have a better deterrent value. Uh, uh, as opposed to a, a garden variety um, a statute. I, I do want to just say really briefly that the practical concerns, even if they're not constitutional concerns, are very important because the prosecution always bears the burden of persuasion, and a live witness is always uh, more compelling than a piece of paper. And so the the, the, the practical realities of this uh, Trial by affidavit simply are not likely to, to be there. Uh, I see my time's expired. I thank the court. Thank you, counsel. Ms. Kruger. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. A state adequately safeguards the confrontation right recognized in Melendez-Diaz when it guarantees that it will, on the defendant's request, bring the analyst into court for face-to-face confrontation and cross-examination at trial. That's not what we said in Melendez-Diaz. Well, Melendez-Diaz. Unfortunately, we said the following. More fundamentally, the confrontation clause imposes a burden on the prosecution 
to present its witnesses, not on the defendant to bring those adverse witnesses into court. Its value to the defendant is not replaced by a system in which the prosecution presents its evidence via ex parte affidavits and waits for the defendant to subpoena the affiance if he chooses. So you're asking us to overrule that, uh, that no, statement? No, Justice Scalia, not at all. We believe that a state complies with that very rule from Melendez-Diaz when it ensures that the analyst is present in court to submit to cross-examination, which is the core of the confrontation right. This Court affirmed in its He's decision. present only if the defendant asks for him, right? That's right. And that's, that's, and that's exactly that's what this addressed. It's not, it's not replaced by a system in which the prosecution presents its evidence by, and waits for the defendant to subpoena the affiance if he chooses. This Court has recognized that the confrontation right is designed to achieve a particular purpose, and that is to ensure that the government's evidence is subject to adversarial testing at trial. It is ultimately up to the defendant in every case to decide, no matter how the prosecution presents its evidence on direct, uh, whether or not it wants to confront the witness and submit that witness's testimony to That may be. It's a testing. perfectly reasonable argument. I just object to your saying that it doesn't contradict Melendez-Diaz. I think it would be surprising to discover that Melendez-Diaz went quite so far. This Court has never before recognized a dimension of the Confrontation Clause that would govern the manner in which the prosecution presents its evidence, except for the rule that it affirmed in Crawford, which is that so long as the government ensures that the witness is available for cross-examination at trial, the Confrontation Clause places no constraints on the government's use of prior testimonial So the statement, the sentence in this opinion, that in your opinion would have the effect of limiting Melendez-Diaz without overruling it, what is that statement? I think the statement is it requires only that the court reaffirm what it already said in Crawford in the context of the lab analyst testimony at issue in this case, which is again when the analyst is available for cross-examination at trial, the government has complied with what the confrontation clause demands. It's provided a constitutionally sufficient opportunity for the defendant to submit that analyst's findings. And it just doesn't apply just to analysts, right? I mean, is there anything peculiar about analysts? Would it not exist for any other witness? Well, our principal submission is that the Confrontation Clause provides in every case an opportunity for effective cross-examination. Okay. And there may be independent constraints on the manner in which the prosecution presents its evidence under the laws of evidence in the, in the jurisdiction because of the government's need to satisfy its burden of proof and ensure a fundamentally fair trial under the Due Process Clause. To the extent that the Court I, I don't is understand. A, what, is that a yes or a no? Well, it is to say that the Confrontation Clause is not what prohibits that practice. What prohibits that practice are other equally effective okay. sources in so the law. So as far as the Confrontation Clause is concerned, this would apply to other witnesses as well? I think that that's right. But even if the Court were to disagree with that submission, this Court could rely on the kinds of distinctions that it's drawn in other cases, like Inati or like White versus Illinois, which recognize that there is a class of hearsay evidence that's not simply a weaker substitute for live testimony at trial that has independent probative significance that makes it somewhat irrelevant whether or not the Indicia of reliability. You want us to go back to that? Is that no, it's, it's not a question of the reliability. What Crawford did was replace a system in which hearsay evidence and its invisibility was dependent on reliability with one in which the touchstone is an opportunity for cross-examination. And it's precisely in response to that point that Crawford again reaffirmed the rule that it first announced in green, that so long as the out-of-court declarant is present at trial to explain or defend his out-of-court statements, the Confrontation Clause is satisfied. What if it doesn't quite work? 
that the Confrontation Clause seems to be uh, expanding just with the opportunity for cross-examination and creating all kinds of uh, incursions into areas where it's not necessary for fairness purposes. Then is it make sense to say, (laughs) unfortunately, but say that the only workable system is that you have a system which has exactly the confrontation point, but indicia of reliability do have an impact as to what the implications of the Confrontation Clause violation are in terms of practical trial necessity. Uh, there we are, accepting the warnings of the dissenters in Crawford. <laughs> I don't think that the touchstone of this Court's analysis need return to the now-discredited Ohio versus Roberts regime. It's simply a practical point. To the extent that petitioners are arguing that their opportunity to confront and to cross-examine is constitutionally inadequate, merely because the prosecution hasn't guaranteed that it will call the witness to the stand first, I think the Court can take due account of the fact that that is not necessarily so. What about Raleigh's witnesses? You know, the hypothetical I gave before, the heart of the matter, the heart of the matter, and they stick in their affidavits. And you say, oh, don't worry, don't worry, you can cross-examine them later in the trial. I think that to the extent that the Court were otherwise inclined to invent a new body of Confrontation Clause jurisprudence to govern the manner in which the prosecution puts on its witnesses and questions them, this isn't the appropriate case to do it. Because, as we've seen from Petitioner's submission earlier this morning, there is no substantive difference from a defendant's perspective. Could you — are you suggesting or are you saying even a trial by affidavit is okay under the Confrontation Clause? Is that your position? Our principal submission is that the Confrontation Clause allows the government to rely on affidavits so long as it brings the affiants into court so that the defendant can ask So you are absolutely questions. saying that under the Confrontation Clause, trial by affidavit of any witness would be okay? That is our so principal. So are you, are you then saying that there's some other constitutional limit to that choice? outside of the Confrontation Clause, and if you are, what would be that other constitutional limit? We do think that there are constitutional limits in the Due Process Clause, and it's guaranteed. Well, how many right hundreds to- of cases will it take to identify those limits under that very clear Due Process Clause? Well, it's, it's, it's somewhat of a difficult question to answer because this is not a question that arises particularly frequently. The laws of evidence, as a general matter, express a strong preference for the prosecution to present its evidence through life. Why do we want question? clear rules for the presentation? Don't we want clear rules, not, not uh, gambling on, on what the Supreme Court will say about due process? I think that it's difficult to imagine that a newfound constitutional rule that would require the prosecution to present its evidence in a certain way in every case would lead to that sort of clarity. It would, if anything, create — Can I just ask this question? I just want to be sure I've got — supposing you have an eyewitness, can you follow the same procedure that you recommend for the uh, scientific witness here for an eyewitness? We think that you could, so long as the defendant has an adequate opportunity to cross-examine that eyewitness about the testimonial statement. But even if you disagreed with that, we think that the Court can take due account of the fact that there is a significant difference between the kind of testimony that an eyewitness provides and the kind of testimony that a forensic analyst provides. The forensic analyst's lab report is not merely a weaker substitute for live testimony. 
It is, in fact, I think, as we see by the relative infrequency with which analysts were called into court before Melendez-Diaz, something that has been been seen to have equal value regardless of the manner in which it's presented. And for that reason, we think that in order to decide this case, all this Court needs to decide is that in the context of forensic lab analysts, what the Court said in Crawford still stands. So long as the government presents the analyst at trial for face-to-face confrontation and cross-examination. Why, what, why do we have to say anything in this case, by the way? Why is this case here except as an opportunity to upset Melendez-Diaz? I this, think that, this Virginia statute no longer exists, does it? So we're pronouncing on the validity of a Virginia statute that is now gone, right? That, that, they, they have adopted a statute that complies completely with Melendez-Diaz. That's true, and I think that that's because Virginia was unwilling to stake the validity of however many convictions in the interim. Well, I'm not, the I'm not criticizing cases. Virginia. This, I'm criticizing us for taking the case. I think that this, <coughs> this case presents, I think, an important opportunity for the Court to provide guidance to states that are currently grappling with how to respond to the practical problems that have been presented in the wake of Melendez-Diaz. So we Diaz. say to them, contrary to what Melendez-Diaz is, that subpoena statutes is that when you read the statute, it says um, the defendant has to subpoena the witness. And on, its, on the face of this statute, without the Commonwealth Court's gloss on it, I don't mean to quibble, Justice Sotomayor, but the statute does not. In fact, on its face, say the defendant must subpoena. It says the witness shall be summoned. But I think to the extent that you had any questions about whether or not the Commonwealth's interpretation of that language were correct, the appropriate course would be to remand to the Virginia Supreme Court to allow them to address that question of state law in the first instance. That question of prior state law, right? Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Friedman, you have four minutes left. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. This is not a notice-and-demand statute. It doesn't even provide notice to the defendant unless he asks for it ahead of time. It doesn't give any deadline as to when he should make a a demand or take any other action. It just says that, uh, and I invite the uh, Court's attention to the language of the statute, it says that the uh, defendant may cause the uh, witness to be uh, summoned. There's no no deadline. It doesn't put the burden of no-shows on the prosecution. It's the defendant's witness, and it clearly doesn't call, uh, doesn't provide that the prosecution should call the the witness. Well, Virginia, the, no, just the, the first one, the no-notice problem, that's kind of silly, isn't it? Because if you're being prosecuted for 50 you, grams of you, you, crack cocaine, you can expect the government's going to try to prove that's, it. That's likely, uh, of, of course. But, um, but the fact is, Virginia knows how to write a good notice and demand statute, and it's done it. And, and contrast the, the, the new statute, which gives 28 days notice. It's, it's very glaring. If Virginia wanted to write a notice and demand statute before, it could have. Now, I think I can explain what's different about Virginia. And what happened is, after the, defend, after the defendant's trials, uh, 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 let me, let me, at the defendant's trials, the, the, the prosecution is saying you, you could have subpoenaed. And they said this isn't testimonial. Okay, they, they, they were wrong in both of those counts. After the defendant's trials, in a case called, called Brooks, the, uh, uh, the uh, Virginia Court of Appeals suggested that um, the defendant could ask the prosecution to uh, uh, bring the, uh, the witness in. Many defendants did that, including Grant, the, the defendant on whom the, uh, in the case on whom the Commonwealth relies so heavily. The prosecution ignored those requests. It was still taking the view that this is not, uh, this is not testimonial. Up until the moment that this Court decided Melendez-Diaz, the uh, Commonwealth in Virginia, in, in Grant, said we don't have to bring the witness in. The, uh, the witness, uh, uh, the defendant can subpoena the witness if, uh, if he wants. No court has ever held 
No court has ever held in Virginia that the prosecution bears the risk of, uh, of no-shows. Now, the, uh, the Commonwealth and the uh, United States suggest, oh, it's okay uh, to, to transform the way trials are conducted by allowing the prosecution to present affidavits because you can backfill with the due process clause. I think that goes against uh, decisions of this Court that say when there's a specific right uh, addressed to a particular situation, we rely on that, not on the, uh, on the due process. I take it your position is it wouldn't matter if, the, if Virginia said that the, uh, the Commonwealth bears the risk of, of a no-show. That wouldn't make any difference. That, 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 would, uh, that would not be enough. No, so, it, it, it's enough. It's so enough. we have to assume that that's the case. Um, well, it, it, uh, that's, that's one problem, the no-show. But, but, but well, they're, like they're both to, problems. Would you like us to, to grant, vacate, and remand in this case and say, uh, because it's unclear who has the risk of a no-show? No, no, then, no, you're Then the Supreme Court of Virginia on remand could decide whether, in fact, the, uh, the, the prosecution bore, the, bore no, that risk? No, no, Your Honor, because it's sufficient that the statute is very clear and the Commonwealth doesn't deny that the, it's the defendant's burden under the statute to call the witness to the stand. So whatever the no-show uh, issue, however that might stand under state law, uh, the, what, what Melendez-Diaz called the more fundamental problem, which is that the statute imposes on the defense the, the burden of calling the witness to the stand, is clearly provided for in this statute. So there's you no reason think Melendez-Diaz uh, addressed the question of the order of proof? Where did it address that? I don't think this is a question of order of proof. This is a question of who puts the witness on the stand. Melendez-Diaz addressed that very explicitly in Part 3E. And said that an affidavit doesn't do that. The pro- prosecution has to present prosecution witnesses. So, does, is the proper solution to grant, vacate, and remand in light of Melendez-Diaz? May, may, may I respond to that? Yes. Th- thank you, um, uh, Your, Your Honor. Um, I, I think that the the proper response here is the the, the court has taken the case. There is enough without any uh, re- resolving any ambiguities of the Virginia statute to say that the, this procedure is unconstitutional because it imposes, even without worrying about the no-show point, it imposes upon the, def- uh, the defendant the burden of putting the uh, witness on the stand. Uh, given that all these states and the United States are c- contesting that this procedure is, uh, is acceptable, I think it's proper for the Court to say right now that it, that it is not. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted. Thank you. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.